Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is United Slaughterhouse America, and our guest is Joshua Speck, author of Red Meat Republic. Our opening song is Don't Fence Me In, written by Robert Fletcher and Cole Porter in 1934, performed by Roy Rogers, as well as Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, and Frank Sinatra stumbled through it on the Lucky Strike-sponsored program Your Hit Parade. This song, like many cowboy songs, is chock full of irony on its face, but especially so when a woman sings it. From Rosemary Clooney and Ella Fitzgerald to this 1996 version by Laurie White. The idealism that imagines freedom and open spaces like the so-called open range masks the genocidal violence of manifest destiny and the labor oppression that accompanies the golden dreams of industrial capitalists. Who has the freedom to roam in the USA? In Red Meat Republic, author Joshua Specht brings to life a turbulent era marked by Indian wars, cowboy myths, Chicago labor unrest, and food riots in the streets of New York. He shows how the enduring success of the cattle beef complex, centralized, low-cost, and meatpacker-dominated, was a consequence of the meatpackers' ability to make their interests overlap with those of a hungry public, while the interests of struggling ranchers, desperate workers, and bankrupt butchers took a back seat. Josh Specht is an environmental and business historian of the 19th century United States, a lecturer in history at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and he's currently a visiting assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. The wide availability of beef has long been deeply entwined with the expansion of American commerce and power. As cattle ranching and meatpacking transformed the economy in the late 19th century, the United States acquired new territories, the apparatus of the state grew, and Americans came to expect cheap and plentiful meat. How that came to be the case seems a representative story of the United States, where, after all, the chief business of the American people is business, to quote President Calvin Coolidge. And now, United Slaughterhouse America, with Red Meat Republic author Josh Specht, on Interchange, on WFHB. Josh Specht, thank you for joining us on Interchange to talk about your book, Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Josh, back in April, I spoke with Nan Enstad about her book, Cigarettes, Inc., and I think it's fair to say your book might have been called Beef, Inc., or her her book might have been called Bright Leaf, the tobacco, Bright Leaf America, um, or Bright Leaf Republic. In any event, it seems that they're cut from the same cloth, uh, an attempt to replace some mythology of America with history. Does that sound fair? 
Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I'm really trying to tell a story about beef in America that argue that doesn't just kind of dispel the myth, but argue that the myth of it was a big part of actually helping create beef, the meaning of beef in America. So telling those side by side. Ah, so the the myth goes hand in hand with uh, with what the history, the actual fact that they they needed each other. They were a part and parcel of the same thing. Yeah, the myth kind of justifies a lot of it, right? So people people at the time and people today have been troubled or at least asked questions about how we produce our beef. Mm-hmm. And I think the mythology of cattle ranching, the mythology of the cowboy, how that connects to American development, that's a big part of kind of saying, well, you know, maybe it's got its problems, but this is okay, and this is kind of how it works in America. Mm, there's a, th- this is the right way to do things, even if there are some problems. These, these are progressive. These are, these, are the, these are the ways that America does stuff. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's jump right in and look at that first myth you discuss. Um, uh, it's really a myth that underlies the entire history of the USA. There was once an open range full of empty space, really needed to be filled up and put to use. Um, this one goes hand in hand with all red man myths in America. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, this, these are these are vast expanses of land needed to kind of ranch profitably, particularly in the 19th century. And there were actually a lot of people living there, a lot of American Indians who had occupied the plains, had lived there for centuries, uh, hunting the bison, engaged in their own kind of trade networks. And so those had to be displaced in order for cattle ranching to take off. And what I argue in the book is that cattle ranching is both a tool for taking American Indian land, and it also is a way of kind of justifying it, since it says we're putting the land to its highest use by ranching. That's mm. really, again, it's one of those things where the, the, the two things, as you say, go hand in hand, um, and and the, the outcome of, you know, tasty beef again, justifies the act of, of genocidal murder. It's such a strange uh, way to think about things. Like, these are thoughts that happen to us in retrospect, Josh, right? Uh, we think uh, uh, along these lines as we look back in the history, are there people at the time saying, man, this is really a crappy thing to do? Um, I think there were people troubled by it, but we have to be careful as historians. You know, we want to try to really get into people's mindsets mm-hmm. and ask ourselves, well, why didn't it? kind of trouble the vast majority of people. And I think there were some kind of fundamental assumptions built in there. And one was that there are different uses you can put to land, and there's kind of a hierarchy of uses. So whether you use something more efficiently to um, ranch a domesticated animal, that's kind of viewed as more legitimate to these people than, say, hunting bison. Now, in the book, of course, I try to argue that these things on one level to us might look very similar. But for people at the time, these were very different. Mm. So it is a clash of how people go about doing things in their lives, obviously, uh, hunting bison and, and catching them a particular way or using them a particular way, using the land as as part of it yourself versus kind of controlling the land, controlling the commodity. Bison weren't so much a commodity, but a way of life. Yeah, I think that they were, they, you know, almost all aspects of the hunt of the bison were able to supply American Indian peoples like the Comanche, like the Kiowa. Now, they often traded certain parts of it, like the animal hides, mm-hmm. known as buffalo robes. Um, but, you know, that was part of shaping their entire society. Now, the funny thing is, yes, beef is a commodity, but if we think about cattle ranching, I mean, that's also an entire way of life. Mm-hmm. There's a whole social and economic system that grows up in places like Texas around cattle ranching. So mm-hmm. the things are pretty similar. Yeah, so uh, one way of life replaces 
places another way of life. Uh, and you could almost say the pace is not too dissimilar, I suppose, at least initially. Um, so cattle replaces bison. Uh, but again, it's easy to sort of walk over elide the, the immense amount of slaughter and the way that um, the particular regime change happens so that, uh, you know, America becomes uh, white Northern European America and uh, Native Americans, indigenous peoples move off into uh, reservations and are literally nearly starved to death. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of, yeah, exactly, oversimplify that story and act as if it's inevitable. When we think about the fact, though, that, you know, there are 20 to 30 million bison in North America um, in the early part, say those late 18th century, uh, when we think about the fact that obviously these are vast areas of lands with millions of people, um, or hundreds of thousands of people in the case of the plains, um, you know, that's, that's a story of ongoing dispossession. And it's not just that it gets, the plains get swept clear by the American military. What I tell in my story is how for early cattle ranchers, interaction with American Indians and fighting with American Indians was part of kind of day-to-day life and part of this kind of on-the-ground process of creating what I call the cattle kingdom. Mm. So uh, let's, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to leave this particular thing simply because it's fascinating. Uh, and it's the book is so full of many things that we need to talk about as we try to understand uh, the world we live in today and the kinds of people we are that, you know, are a part of how we come from these, these situations and how they develop our economy as we go along and how we develop as uh, people who expect certain things in our living. Um, let's jump in and talk uh, a little bit about, I, I think it's um, Charles Goodnight. There's a, a juridical decision about how uh, they're, they're dealing with these kind of ranchers versus uh, Native Americans uh, fighting versus criminal activity. Sure, yeah. So one of the things I try to trace in the book is that, you know, this process of bringing cattle ranching to the plains is what I see as kind of a bloody war for power on the plains. And what I find is interesting is that's happening in the 1860s and 1870s and the period before that. But later in the 1890s and into the 20th century, that story gets retold, and it doesn't look like a conflict. The United States government basically starts to tell the story of we were kind of always in charge, and sure, there was conflict between ranchers and American Indians, but those were kind of criminal American Indians. And so there's all these lawsuits that I think of between ranchers and American Indians, like the Comanche, uh, that are basically claiming that the Comanche stole cattle. Mm. But what I see is a state of war. And so I look at some of these court cases in which someone like Charles Goodnight, a pioneering rancher, actually tried to sue the Comanche and arguing this is a property crime. And I try to say, hey, wait a second, this isn't this isn't just theft, this is a war. And, and once we start to think about it as a war, all those kinds of interactions look a lot different. That's an interesting uh, thing to, again, to think about it those in those terms. So one can imagine the Comanche always being at war, thinking they're they at war. And at the same time, you can imagine the Good Knight's perspective saying, this war has been over for a long time. And so this is property or, you know, like the, the two ways of life, the two, even at this late a date, you know, trying to understand how the two groups are dealing with each other. Uh, it's just, it's, it's pretty hard. I like that, you know, we look at this as a juridical issue that, that exposes a kind of way to do it so that, so that you can take more stuff, right? There's a way in which you frame it that if it's, if it's an act of war, it's okay, right? It's, it's, it's justified. Uh, but if it's, it's classed as there's no war going on, then it's criminal and prosecutable. 
Yeah, I mean, think about how you maybe treat or relate to an enemy combatant, an opposing side in a war, and how you, how you relate to a criminal. So by casting American Indians as criminals, what the United States government ends up doing is saying, well, actually, we're the ones who are kind of rightfully in charge here, and we're going to keep order. We're kind of the referees. Whereas if we think about it as war, right, we see two hostile powers. Right. So telling the, casting American Indians as criminals becomes a way in part of justifying what has happened in the early part of the story, I tell. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and story is a big part of this throughout, right? So as, as we go along, we're talking about how the myth and propaganda walks side by side with this uh, this sort of expansion of, of cattle ranching and, and beef and, uh, uh, as you say, dispossessing the American Indian of land and property themselves, um, but also in, in the ways in which the story of Native Americans are told back to white Americans. The story that sort of walks through the plains itself with you know journalists or news reporters at the time uh, to tell what kinds of people Native Americans are, what they're doing in this place, why it's okay to dispossess them. They're not worth uh, you know allowing to be here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I tell the story of uh, what were called then beef handouts on American Indian reservations. So this is basically American Indians are forced onto these reservations. They don't have many options for farming or supporting themselves. And local cattle ranchers have contracts with the government to supply these people with cattle for them to eat. And journalists would kind of go around and watch these handouts and write these very sensationalist descriptions of American Indians kind of violently slaughtering animals and eating their flesh raw. And they would sell that to Americans back in a place like New York or Boston. Those people in on the East Coast would read this and think, look, these it's okay what we've done because these people kind of weren't able to support themselves. They're on government handouts. And so that ends up being a way of justifying it. So I look at how those, that kind of spectacle of people observing American Indians as justifying the system, like you said. Yeah, it's it's a hard one to get uh, to get over in some respects. It's one that kind of got me stuck at the beginning of the book of just being very angry with with the process, right? The idea of the propaganda. You know, we, we tend to lionize journalism in this country oddly in, in many ways because as you go back and you look at it, you see it as a handmaiden of power frequently in situations like this in particular. Do you think uh, is there an intentional space there? I think a lot of uh, a lot of people sort of in those positions at the time were out there looking to write sensation, sensational pieces. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting question and point. Um, I think so. I mean, you know, there's that old expression, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And I think there's, there's something about that trying to sell copy. Now, that's not to say there weren't, you know, meaningful critics who were journalists. But, you know, my, your goal as a historian is often to look at a different time and place and look at people's unexamined assumptions. And often we're kind of struck by how different they are, and this is one case of that. Yeah, it's difficult to do. Let's take a quick break. This is Neil Young with his version of Home on the Range. Stay with us for more on our Red Meat Republic with author Josh Specht when Interchange returns on WFHB. Discouraging word and 
the skies are not cloudy all day. Home, home on the range, where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. No, the skies are not cloudy all day. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Josh Specht, author of Red Meat Republic. We just heard Neil Young doing a version of Home on the Range, the state song of Kansas. Neil doesn't offer much of the lyrics. Here's a verse we didn't hear. The red man was pressed from this part of the West. It's not likely he'll ever return to the banks of Red River, where seldom, if ever, his flickering campfires still burn. We just talked about uh, the fact that cattle ranching, cattle itself replaced bison, and white people replaced red people in the mythology of those terms. Um, this, uh, again, is Doug Storm on Interchange. Josh, uh, let's talk about the cowboy myth now. How does the cowboy come into the story? Yeah, so I think this is another place where we can look at that tension between the myth and the reality. You know, so in in the late 1870s, early 1880s, these huge cattle ranches get organized that actually look a lot like big businesses. They're not, they're not really how we might imagine our head cattle ranches. And one of the things they do is they employ lots of people as cowboys, lots of employees. And so in the book, I try to contrast the existence of these people as essentially wage laborers. I call them cattle workers. They're paid, you know, not hourly, but they're paid a weekly wage. And I try to contrast that with the romance of the cowboy kind of riding the open range kind of on the trail, and I look at cowboy songs and how those kind of perpetuate this myth at the same time that these people look like industrial workers. The uh, it's a, you do note in the book that one of the uh, like a cowboy, uh, uh, big Bill, big Bill Haywood, the founder of the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, was a cowboy. Yeah, and he talks about cattle ranching as some of the hardest work he did in his life. Yeah, it's uh, again one of those things where the cowboy myth is in- immense, really, in the history of the West or the idea of the West, the idea of what it means to be a free man, even what it means to be a man. It, it's you know we we opened uh, I mentioned cigarettes Inc. and Nan Enstead. We talk about the Marlboro Man and we talk about what it means to be alive in the West, and this is a key issue here. Um, and the cowboy at the same time. In, in your research is really a pretty sad sack frequently. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's rough. It's a rough life. I tell the story of, of a cowboy who, he's kind of unusual in that he keeps a nice diary and he's really funny, but he moves from upstate New York to New Mexico and he just details his life. And one of the things I find interesting is that it's just, it's really tough. I mean, mm. he's not paid that well. He works long hours, pretty much day and night. Um, but what's funny is he gets these letters from his mother saying, when are you going to come back? And, and despite all the difficulty and despite, you know, struggling, he says, well, I, I kind of want to stay here. You know, I like it. And so I try to play with those two sides. I also tell the story in 1883 of a time when cowboys actually went on strike at a number of ranches in the Texas panhandle. Mm. And I use that to kind of complicate our view of the cowboy. What kind of, st- I mean, how are they able to do that? I, one gets the sense that striking is often a difficult thing because you need lots of people in one place. Well, you've just pointed to the exact problem they had. So the strike was not that successful. Now, they waited until the spring roundup when you kind of get together and you mm. brand newborn calves and get ready to take things to market. So they were good on the timing. The problem, though, is that they were, of course, spread across a bunch of ranches in the Texas panhandle, and so they couldn't quite get the kind of critical mass of people to execute the strike. But for a while, the ranches were worried because it's not like you could quickly hire new people in a kind of remote place. And so it's at times, it seems like it's be successful, but they did run into the problem you just pointed out. Now, were there, uh, when you talk about ranches being giant places, I mean, were there literal corporations in a sense? I mean, these were these were uh, companies backed by um, foreign finance, things of that nature. Yeah, exactly. So we have this story about the American West as a place of kind of, you know, individuals working hard and kind of pulling themselves up, a place where there's no government, a place where there's no big business. But what I talk about in the early 1880s is there was all this investment capital coming from the East Coast of the United States and as far away as Scotland to set up these huge corporate ranches that had lots of investors. They kept detailed account books. They had headquarter offices, sorry, in Texas, in Wyoming, in Chicago. And so they look like a modern corporation. Mm, and you do, uh, it's interesting because you quote a lot from The Economist, you know, the uh, British uh, magazine uh, as you know, actually tracking a lot of this because so much money was invested. Yeah, um, basically almost every issue or every few issues of The Economist would have a report kind of from the American West. And, and one of the features of that was the cattle ranges of the West. And the idea with that, I mean, they cover things for a reason. That's because there were people in London or people in Great Britain who wanted to invest there. And so they're getting kind of commercial intelligence. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Josh Specht, a visiting assistant professor of history at the University of Notre Dame, author of Red Meat Republic, A Hoof-to-Table History of How Beef Changed America, published by Princeton University Press. You talked about individualism there, uh, uh, Josh, and, and there is a, a tension that happens here also, right? The idea of these giant corporations that at some point uh, the corporations fall apart. I'm not sure how we get from, you know, great vast sums of money and cattle um, to sort of the corporation falling apart. Uh, there, There's a tension in other, other uh, competitive markets here, competitive, uh, you know, uh, jockeying to try to, to get this. But one of the issues is cattle itself, right? That's very difficult to track cattle. It's very difficult to account for cattle. Uh, account books are actually wrong most of the time. <laughs> a lot of reports about how these numbers are, are made up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've said that cattle ranching in, in the time became kind of big business. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't always the most profitable business. And so things were kind of messy. I talk about how the best way to make money off cattle, particularly in remote places in the American West, is to kind of scatter them far and wide so mm. that they can kind of eat grasses on their own and take care of themselves. Now, the problem is if you scatter animals far and wide, you can't keep careful track of them. 
And of course, what do investors want? Well, they want to always know exactly what's happening with their money. And so this leads to a certain kind of friction. Um, and eventually, people are overenthusiastic. These businesses aren't run that well. And they kind of implode. And ranching actually goes into decline. And as well, I'm sure we'll get into in a bit, that happens at the exact moment these meatpacking firms in Chicago are starting to get big. And that's how they kind of take over the story. But for the ranching bit, it's that, you know, it is run like a big business, but it's a risky business. Mm, it's pretty fascinating to, to think of it as, um, you know, I think here you point out the tension, the capitalist tension, right, of, of not having the ability to be very efficient. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. And, and it actually, as you say, leads into the meatpacking, leads into what is possible uh, in efficiencies or becoming, bringing efficiencies into the situation. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think there's a, there's, a, there's kind of a debate or a conversation with scholars and, and, and people in general about, you know, how the American economy develops. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who say it's kind of a gradual, relatively stable process. And there's another school of thought that it basically careens from boom to bust. And that interplay between boom and bust has high human cost, but that's kind of the key motor of the American economy. I lean more towards the boom and bust model, as I, as I show in the story. Yeah, it, well, it does. In your book, in, in, indeed, there's lots of booming and lots, lots of busting. <laughs> what is, um, what's interesting, too, you mentioned the kind of, again, the mythos of the, the rancher is a part of this, too, or how the rancher becomes, uh, the uh, I guess, the quintessential American, as you say, the individualist, from going from corporate ranching to, to small ranches, to small farmers, small holder, holders who, who see themselves as true Americans and are uh, nationalist and kind of local. Yeah. So after, I, I, as we just said, I talk about how the big, ranching is big business kind of falls apart in the late 1880s. And after that, as a kind of reaction to that, ranching is still, in a sense, run like a business. It's relatively smaller, but they develop a whole kind of identity that kind of rejects that earlier period. And in there, they're kind of talking about this idea that they're the ultimate American. They're maybe appropriating some of those ideas about cowboys. And that's how we get some of the worldview and identity of ranchers today. Mm, the Clive and Bundys of our world have this yeah. as their background. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so where's the railroad in all this, Josh? Uh, the 1880s were long past with the railroad coming into view. How's the railroad working out in this in this space? Well, the railroad is is absolutely essential to this whole story um, because the railroad allows you know regional markets in the United States to connect together. Now, in the early part of my story, the railroads haven't quite reached remote places across the Great Plains. That's why you get the long cattle drive of of legend. Um, but as they're spreading, they're becoming more and more important to connecting places more quickly. Now, the interesting thing about that is that once railroads connect all these different remote areas in the United States, all of a sudden a national cattle market makes life very hard on ranchers, right? If you're a rancher in, in Texas, the early part of my story, you're kind of lucky because you're well tapped into markets. But the railroads mean that some rancher up in Montana can just as easily get to market. And so all of a sudden all the ranchers are competing and connected with each other. Mm. That's pretty interesting. It's one of the things that I think spurs, uh, maybe this is one of the things that spurs standardization as well. Um, the idea, all of a sudden things have to be kind of similar in this space. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, once things are moving more quickly, Standardization um, both becomes necessary because you need to kind of coordinate things from various places, but it also kind of helps that process along. I mean, it's the same reason why you get the standardization of time zones in the United States Mm. across the world that's often connected to railroads and time schedules. Speed is interesting here. Uh, It's a big issue in all sort of corporate capital 
uh, things, right? Efficiencies and speed and how we go about getting things from here to there. Uh, logistics is a part of that. And, and logistics is a big part of this particular uh, situation as well. Um, what, what, what what do you think is lost along the way? I, I know a lot of this uh, a lot of this sort of rolls by pretty quickly, uh, but people organize a particular way and and then lose that sense of what they're doing, where they've come from. There is a big tension in here once we get to the meat packers and the slaughterhouses between uh, butchers and this kind of industrialized. Uh, uh, meat packing, right? So we're losing some of these ways of living, even though they're kind of oddly, uh, well, butch, uh, obviously being a butcher probably had a long history of, of, you know, how you deal with, with meat in, 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 as, as people. But the idea of sort of losing identity that was sort of quickly formed and lost again, you know, uh, like the rancher, as you say, or the cattle drive, and these things kind of go away pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, I don't know if it's all good or all bad, but but things start to disappear. I mean, once you get standardization and speed, local communities often suffer, right? Mm -hmm. Individual towns, towns that might have looked very different, they all maybe start to look a bit similar, Mm -hmm. and something is lost there. Uh, Certain kinds of jobs disappear, and I think, you know, some of that is an acceptable cost, right, because there is real benefit to the system, and some of it has a more kind of tragic edge. Well, uh, you do talk about how uh, there are ways in which, you know, town uh, people who found towns or town fathers, they're so-called, uh, you know, often are trying to promote their town and they often end up using uh, the same kinds of materials that other towns do to try to, you know, get a particular um, a business to come see them, right? So it's, again, another way that things become standardized because you want to be as good as Kansas City or as good as uh, Omaha or something like that. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, that was one of my favorite parts of the book to actually research is, is looking at all these small cattle towns in Kansas and how all the kind of promoters for these towns are engaged in this cutthroat competition where they would steal other towns' advertisements and just slap the name of their town on the bottom, <laughs> or they would write individual letters, or they would try to get laws passed to hurt rival towns. It's a really kind of exciting and fun part of the story. Hmm. It's, uh, let's take another break now. This is Eat Meat by Reverend Horton Heat. More with Josh Specht on how Beef Changed America when Interchange returns. Eat steak, eat steak, eat a big old steer. Eat steak, eat steak, do we have one beer? Eat beef, eat beef, it's a mighty good food. It's a great day meal when I'm in the mood. Cowpokes will come from a near and far when you throw a few ribeyes on the farm. Roberta Duran ain't two before a fight cause it gives a mighty man an awful lot of mighty mind. Eat steak, eat steak, eat a big old steer. Eat steak, eat steak, do we have one deer? Eat beef, eat beef, it's a mighty good food. It's a great day meal when I bring the food. Eat meat, eat meat, filet mignon, eat meat, eat meat, eat it all day long. Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. 
You're listening to Interchange on WFHB Independent Radio. Look at all the cows in the slaughterhouse yard. Gotta hit them in the head. Gotta hit them real hard. First you gotta clean it, then the butcher cuts it up. Throws it on a scale, throws an eyeball in a cup. Saw a big brave steer standing right over there. So I wrestled up a fire, picked a medium rare. Barbecued his brisket, a roasted his rump. Fed my dogs with a brave steer's honk. Eat steak, eat steak, eat a big old steer. Eat steak, eat steak, do we have one here? Eat beef, eat beef, it's a mighty good food. It's a great A meal when I'm in Welcome back to Interchange. Again, that was Reverend Horton Heat. I said it was eat uh, meat, I think. It's actually eat steak. Sorry about that, Reverend. Uh, uh, this is Doug Storman Interchange. Uh, our show is United Slaughterhouse America, and our guest is Josh Specht, lecturer in history at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. He's currently a visiting assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, author of Red Meat Republic. Uh, Josh, um, that's a good song to go into the meatpacking part of of the story. Uh, My favorite chapter, I think, by far is Slaughterhouse. Um, It's just, uh, again, one of those just it's not shocking, I suppose. You do it. You do these kinds of shows long enough, or try to look into business practices long enough. You you shouldn't be shocked by most things, right? So, uh, but but here the main villain of my uh, what I think who I think of as the main villain of the book uh, comes uh, comes in, and uh, you call him an antihero in an uh, email to me. I'm not sure what the difference is, um, but it's Philip. Uh, excuse me, Philip Danforth Armour, head of Armour and Company, uh, Behemoth Meatpacking Corporation, Chicago. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Doug, I think you're exactly right. I mean, he really is the kind of villain or anti-hero central character of of, of the book. Um, so he's, you know, he gets started. Uh, he's he's like many of these characters who become Chicago business people, born kind of in the eastern part of the United States. He goes west for a time. He gets a little bit of startup money from his parents. He goes west. He makes a bit of money in California, involved in mining there. He moves to Milwaukee. He gets involved with a slaughterhouse there, and eventually he he ends up in Chicago. I like to think of Chicago as kind of a 19th century version of Silicon Valley. If you want to go have a big business, you go there. Mm -hmm. And he gets into meatpacking, and he makes some really smart bets during the American Civil War to supply pork to the United States Army. And he gets rich, and he eventually moves into all sorts of meat and builds a national and eventually global kind of meatpacking concern. Mm. So uh, this is one of the big four. Uh, they're called uh, the big four meatpacking. Uh, did, did these meatpacking uh, companies kind of spring up together, or was Armour kind of lead the way and these others came along? No. Um, so the, the big four do kind of spring up at similar times. Uh, that would be Armour and Company we're talking about now. There's also Swift and Company, Hammond and Company, and Morrison Company. And, and later those people talk of a big five and a big six. I won't go on too much about that. Um, Swift and Company is actually, they're kind of the real pioneers because Gustavus Swift, he moves in the early 1870s, late 1860s into experimenting with refrigerated shipping. Mm. Um, so he starts trying to ship fresh meat east. He's these early experiments in the 1870s, and then all the meat packers kind of get into it. Hmm. Armour, though, in a way, he's kind of the most charismatic of these characters. He does kind of become the most powerful meat packer, and he's all over the press. He's very famous because, in part, 
He's known for hating unions and attempts by workers to strike. So he's all over the press whenever there's a big strike. And it's, it's almost like uh, just a kind of personal distaste for unions. It's part of what fuels this. But he kind of becomes the most famous of the meatpackers. Yeah, it's why he becomes the villain, too. He's, you know, he's obviously the, the bad guy against labor. And he, of course, this is a big issue uh, that, we, that we deal with in this country. Industrial practices uh, have to diminish and minimize the work of, of people, uh, and make them as uh, little valuable as possible, as uh, less valuable than the than the cattle themselves, less valuable than anything uh, apart, you know, any part of the process itself. You have to be able to replace people easily, readily at any time, and so industry uh, needs people to be abundant and valueless. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the trick. So what they figure out is they kind of pioneered this process of taking apart an animal. This mm. is pioneered at first with pork, uh, actually in Cincinnati, which at first seems like it might be the great meatpacking center of the United States. Mm, Porkopolis. Porkopolis, exactly <laughs> right. And later the Chicago meatpackers move into this. And what they do is they break you know, the process of slaughtering and taking apart an animal into individual steps where each person does one little piece of the story. And if people are doing one piece of the story, they can just do that piece over and over and over, and that makes people much faster, and you can work people much harder. And so they all start to work along what for them was a disassembly line, or what we might know as the assembly line. But of course, meatpackers were taking one thing apart. Um, and everybody has to work at the same pace. So you can use all sorts of tricks to work people harder. Uh, the kind of most well-known one is you pay one guy to work a bit faster than everyone else, and everybody else has to match his speed. Yeah, I think I saw an episode of Roseanne where they did that even. Yeah, I mean, there we go. I think this is a, this is a common theme in, in kind of media. It's and sad that I said that, and I, I don't mean to derail a very serious conversation, but it was a labor episode, and this is exactly what they tried to do with Roseanne, was to make her work harder so the others would have to do it as well. And I think that show gets into a lot of these themes. They do. They really do. Uh, this is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Josh Specht, a visiting assistant professor of history at University of Notre Dame, author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. Um, so so the disassembly line, uh, of course, uh, I think at some point you mentioned that perhaps Henry Ford got something from this. He does. In his memoirs, he talks about having the idea for his assembly line from watching a side of beef in Chicago be taken apart. Mm, that's just lovely. It really suggests a lot about it. It really, well, it suggests a lot about industry in general, right? Like this is a, the, to me, this is why the story is so interesting, so important, so shocking, so awful. Um, is the way that we organize around these kinds of processes. And as you say uh, throughout, how we justify these processes, how we justify letting them be the case, how these are, uh, you know, how we organize labor, how we say okay to these kinds of things, how we uh, absolutely care not a bit about the numbers of of cattle, pigs, sheep, et cetera, that are, that are being slaughtered. I think it's hard to understand this industrialization, like uh, I think uh, I, I read somewhere in 1890, it took about 18, uh, 8 to 10 hours for a butcher and his assistant to slaughter and dress a steer on a farm in Chicago. It took 35 minutes. Uh, packing houses were killing fifteen to 2,500 steers a day, killing 6,000, 7,000 hogs a day same amount of sheep. Now, we're in the, uh, probably the millions today, right? So these are, these are shocking amounts of yeah. creatures, right? Of, of living, live beings who are just getting hit on the head with hammers uh, and then sliced open. 
Yeah, I mean the the, the account the numbers are are staggering as you suggest. I mean, and and the speed with which it happens, and you know, part of that is breaking these things into small steps kind right. of helps people be more efficient. But of course, it's also just achieved by working people harder and harder, putting more pressure on workers. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about Vincent or Vincent Rutkowski uh, and a civil suit he brought against, uh, I think it was Swift and Company. He's a fourteen-year-old worker. Yeah, he. Um, so that's a story I tell in the book. It's really interesting. He's he's a fourteen-year-old boy. Um, he works kind of trimming, uh, kind of the area around uh, the paunch of cattle, and it's kind of you got to get real low to kind of trim this area of the of the carcass, which is perfect for a fourteen-year-old boy because you have to both be strong but kind of still kind of short. And he starts working at the slaughterhouses as a young as a young boy. He has two people he's working with, uh, but Vincenzo is good at his job. And eventually they realize, well, why pay three people to do what we can eventually force one person to do? But the problem is he starts working so hard that it gets pretty dangerous. Mm. And um, shortly after he switches to just him, he's hit by a carcass he doesn't see that swings towards him. And he ends up cutting himself very badly with his kind of uh, knife. And he ends up maimed. He basically loses the use of his arm. And he can't work anymore. He loses his job. And he spends the rest of his life trying to get a settlement, trying to sue the company, Swift and Company, for some sort of compensation. He eventually gets a little bit of money, but he really struggles. And and the reason he struggles is both shocking but I think revealing about the period. The courts basically argue that because he knew it was dangerous and kept working, it's kind of on him. It was his fault. Now, when we think about a 14-year-old boy, a recent immigrant to the United States, working in a slaughterhouse, I don't know how much choice he had in, in, in the matter. And I think that's indicative of the, play, the things workers faced at the time. Well, I think they still face these things today. This is part of the issue that, again, we're, we're still struggling with trying to understand these things. And the court's certainly not protecting workers, even, even uh, as we tear apart the minimal protections that we had with the uh, uh, 1935 National Labor Relations Act. Uh, we're still struggling with these things. It is a fascinating story and it's an interesting um, thing to think about. Uh, I think that he won the case, right? He won the case initially, uh, and this is in Illinois, he won the case initially, but then lost it at, uh, at the Supreme Court of Illinois level? Yeah. And then eventually he appeals in some related thing, and he gets a little bit of money, but it's really pretty paltry. Well, at the time, I think initially he got 500 bucks, and then I think the, the next verdict was 2200 which may be a lot of money. I have no idea. I mean, I don't know what that conversion is at this point. But, um, but you're right. The, the idea that you're, you're – like he's saying the company knows that this is dangerous. We've sped up production. We've sped up these processes. I can't – and you fired – or, you know, taken out the, the people that should be here to help me do this job. And the company knows this is the case, but you know it too, it's going to be dangerous. So you're responsible for your own safety. Yeah. I mean, this, this changes a bit later. This kind of logic doesn't really hold weight anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, there are definitely parallels today. Well, yeah, we struggle with some of these, these things with uh, things like contractors now as well, uh, because we've taken it out of the protectionist space anymore. Exactly. Um, so uh, let's, uh, there's another case, and I, I like to talk about the legal cases because I think they're fascinating uh, ways in which things are changed without most of us having any, any clue about them, right? How, how these things make a difference. And you talk 
talked a, a little bit before about how um, you know the beef is moving around. How I think the Gustavus was uh, somebody you talked about trying to work about dressing meat, and there's a lot in here about how you know cows move as whole creatures, uh, how cows are moved as cut up pieces, how cows are dressed locally, how they're you know how they're um, treated as butchered elements at some other points. So I don't want to lose a lot of that because that's a really interesting part of this as well. One of these cases that you talk about the barber case kind of deals with uh, how the the law kind of manages uh, that kind of aspect. Yeah. So what what happens is so so basically all of the slaughtering of animals starts to get centralized in Chicago. Now the meatpackers they don't want to do retail butchering. They don't want to do kind of the last step where you separate the carcass into tiny pieces, maybe a, a kilogram or two of meat. But they want to basically do the first step, getting the the carcass into halves or quarters. And they start to drive butchers around the United States bankrupt through various pretty cutthroat strategies. And so in some communities around the United States, local butchers who are going out of business get together and they get laws passed against this Chicago-dressed beef. They get laws saying, well, you can't bring meat in from out of state. It's got to be inspected locally. It's got to be inspected while the animal's still alive in a place like Minnesota, which is where the story happens. And so what the meatpackers do is they're big businesses. They're very savvy. They go around the country and they challenge these local inspection laws. And so Henry Barber, is a, he, he kind of presents as kind of a like traveling butcher. He goes to Minnesota with some out-of-state beef. He gets arrested. And all of a sudden, it turns out this was all a setup, and the meatpackers have kind of, he works for, for the meatpackers, and all of a sudden, it becomes a big test case. And what the courts eventually decide, um, in the case of Barber v. Minnesota, is that you can actually inspect meat centrally in Chicago, and that in addition to that, that is kind of a more sensible way to coordinate the regulation of meat products, and that becomes the key to the The power of the meat packers actually is rooted in this court decision that says you can't have local protectionism. Mm, but then this is also something that leads into how regulation happens as well. The state was happy to regulate uh, far fewer actors and far larger actors. Yes. So what we see is kind of interesting is that big government and big business often work together well, right? You don't want to deal with regulating a bunch of tiny slaughterhouses or tiny operations. It's easier to work with the big actors. Now, in a way, that makes sense because it's more cost-effective, it's more efficient, but that helps contribute to this world of big industrial food. And, And you even see it today where people have trouble setting up smaller kind of food production operations because it's so expensive to comply with these big regulations. It's time for our final break. This is Boogie Down Productions and KRS-One with Beef off of the 1990 album Edutainment. Stay with us for more on our Red Meat Republic when Interchange returns on WFHB. Beef, what a relief. When will this poisonous product cease? This is another public service announcement. You can believe it or you can doubt it. Let us begin now with the cow. The way it gets to your plate and how. The cow doesn't grow fast enough for man. So through his greed, he makes a faster plan. He has drugs to make the cow grow quicker. Through the stress, the cow gets sicker. 21 different drugs are pumped into the cow in one big lump. So just before it dies, it cries in the slaughterhouse full of germs and flies. Off with the head. They pack it, drain it, and cart it. And there it is in your local supermarket. Red and bloody, a corpse neatly packed. And you wonder about heart attacks? Come on now, man, let's be for real. You are what you eat is the way I feel, but... 
The Food and Drug Administration will tell you meat is the perfect combination. See, cows live under fear and stress, trying to think what's gonna happen next. Fear and stress can become a part of you, in your cells and blood, this is true. So when the cow is killed, believe it. You preserve those cells, you freeze it, thaw it out with the blood and season it. Then you sit down and begin eating it. In your body, its structure becomes your structure. All the fear and stress of another. Any drug is addicted by any name. Even drugs in meat, they are the same. The FDA has America strung out on drugs and beef, no doubt. So if you think that what I say is a bunch of crap, tell yourself you're gonna try and stop eating meat and you'll see you can't compete. It's the number one drug on the street, not crack, cause that was made for just black but ground beef for all American teeth. Life brings life, death brings death. Keep on eating the dead and what's left. Absolute disease and negative. Read the book How to Eat to Live by Elijah Muhammad. It's a brown paperback for anybody, either white or black. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today is a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America with author Josh Specht. We've covered a lot of ground today. We just had KRS-One talking about FDA. We should probably get into that space before we run out of time. So Upton Sinclair's Jungle, uh, the jungle is obviously uh, one of those uh, those primary books of the century, the 20th century, early 20th century at least, uh, compared with Uncle Tom's Cabin as, a, as an expose of a particular kind of industry. It's a sad thing uh, that we can imagine talking about these two things together, but they're literally about how we, we manage uh, bodies that are considered foreign to ourselves. So um, let's talk a little bit about how, uh, if the jungle did any good. Yeah, I think the jungle, first of all, I would recommend all everyone out there should, should check it out. It's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a good and interesting read. After they read The Red Meat Republic, go right to yeah. the jungle. <laughs> yeah, I should, I should probably plug, you know, my own book first. <laughs> but the jungle is very good. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the tale of a, a family um, and the protagonist, Jurgis Rudkus, and his family kind of working in the Union Stockyard and environs in Chicago and in the packing houses. Um, and Sinclair, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a novel, but he had based it, he did research in the community, he'd done a lot of kind of research, so it's, it's, got, a, it's got a degree of realism. Um, but it was really intended to kind of be this expose about the human cost of industrial beef or of, of the Chicago meatpacking industry. And, and that's in there, a lot of that's in there. Um, but it also just details the kind of terrible sanitation Right. It, it talks about wastewater getting into uh, the meat. It talks about worker blood. It talks about rats and things getting into the meat. And it, it ends up disgusting people kind of along the way. And what happens is everybody focuses on that story of sanitary conditions and how disgusting they are. And so the book gets all this movement on addressing sanitation in slaughterhouses, but the kind of revolutionary worker message that was so important to Sinclair gets lost. Mm, so this is where the the uh, I guess it's the Pure Food and Drug Act springs out of. Yeah. So the Pure Food and Drug Act, as well as what's really key in terms of beef, is the Federal Meat Inspection Act. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those are, are kind of they're kind of brewing for a while, but this helps spur this. So Teddy Roosevelt, um, as president, he's he's kind of had a long running. Um, opposition to the the beef trust as it was known at the time or mm-hmm. the Chicago meatpacking industry has been suspicious. He's definitely not a fan of Sinclair because he's not a fan of socialism. Right. 
But the jungle gets such a big reception and people are so horrified that then there becomes a push for some government management and engagement and they start to go with inspection. So one of the issues that uh, that you call uh, throughout the book is the way in which this focus on purity or cleanliness, uh, again, as you just said, loses, like it takes the focus off of every other bad thing that's going on in the meatpacking industry. Yeah, I think that's really important. So, you know, one of the things I talk about is how trust is important. So people need to learn to trust their food. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, once they trust that their food isn't going to poison them, you're exactly right. They don't think about all the other aspects of production that might trouble them, right? They don't think about the the labor exploitation. They don't think about the environmental impact, or at least they struggle to. And so the more they trust their food is, is, is kind of safe to eat, the less they think about the rest of the industrial process and the more it can kind of disappear into the background, which is the goal of the big meatpacking firm. Of course. And one of the things that you talk about throughout is just just the fact of beef itself, right? The idea that that beef becomes a staple of the diet of Americans from the lowliest uh, immigrant worker to to the wealthiest. Uh, everybody wants and gets steak. And then we have to decide which steaks are for the rich people and which steaks are for the poor people. Uh, and then there are all sorts of arguments about why you should eat a porterhouse if you're rich or what the porterhouse is for. All these things sort of uh, become a part of America and beef. Why is it, how did beef become this, thing? it's such an amazing story, such a giant animal, right? So, 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 ima- I mean, so massive. And so it's just such a weird thing that it became the thing that we ate instead of, I don't know, corn or, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's just one of those things that just are, are just shocking to me, uh, in, in trying to imagine how it became the thing it did, it, you know, and, and, and as you say throughout, these things aren't inevitable. They happen for a reason or they happen in part of a system and its processes, but how in the world did cattle become what a, you know, you know, a staple diet? Well, if you think about it, um, so meat is, is, is obviously more difficult and expensive to produce than something like corn, in mm-hmm. part because actually you can help kind of grains get converted into meat. Mm-hmm. And for many of the people who immigrate to the United States, meat was kind of a special occasion food. Mm-hmm. So back in Europe, you might have meat infrequently if you're poorer, or you might have it on feast days or religious holidays, etc. And so all of a sudden, when you come to America, this kind of expensive food you can only get infrequently, maybe because there aren't so many cattle around, all of a sudden you can have it all the time. And so your ability to have that becomes a metric for your success as an American or as a worker. And so the beef, your ability to consume beef and beef all the time in higher and higher qualities is the metric. Mm. And so that's why it becomes so important to people, I think. It's pretty amazing. The uh, One of the things that uh, struck me recently, I was watching the movie Snowpiercer. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a dystopian end of the world. I want to see it now, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty good, actually. But uh, they open the movie with like re- trying to remember what steak tastes like what it what steak uh. smells like they're in a train they're stuck in a train they've been in a train for like 30 years and they get protein bars turns out the protein bars are are just bugs uh ground up and turned into gelatin so the tail end which you know the, these are the proletariat if you're if it's 1984 these are the proles uh who are in the tail end of the car they're eating protein in the form of bugs and but the the they begin the movie with with i wish i had some beef yeah, right. Like, I think yeah. makes that makes sense. I mean, beef is kind of the top of our conceptual food hierarchy. It's it's so important, and what you eat becomes a way of it. It doesn't just taste good, it doesn't just feel good, but it becomes a marker of who you are. And I think that movie is revealing that. 
Mm. So uh, before we go, it's not much time left. I do want to talk about sort of the misogyny of pre- preparing beef and, and the way in which women are treated in this realm also. Yeah, so it's kind of, I, I identify as kind of strange tension in my story in that women are kind of expected to cook and prepare the meat at home, but at the same time there's a stereotype, and I think you see elements of that today, that women aren't able to cook meat well because it's kind of a bloody primal process. There's a simultaneous shaming of women and reliance on them to actually do the cooking. I love. I just love that. It's it's such an amazing thing. You cannot cook meat, but you need to cook my meat. Yeah, exactly, and that's all over the sources. <laughs> It's hard to believe. Um, so there's there's an amazing amount of sort of elitism and classism in this story as well. Uh, you know, we, we passed over the butchers, but one of the interesting thing about this is the kind of elitism of practice too, an elitism of uh, sort of organized working practice. The thing you do that that you have an identity with is is your work, and so that's a tension in here as well. As people as people sort of move away uh, from doing these things that are that are how they identify themselves and see themselves as special doing. I'm really good at cutting up meat. I don't, and I guess that's a thing. Um, so that goes away as well. And that's an interesting sort of, we, you call it throughout the democratization of beef or the democratization of, of how we eat. And it's, a, it's kind of an amazing thing to me. I don't find anything de- democratic about it in terms of it's not, um, as people, it doesn't seem very politic. Um, but you know, to have the capacity to eat meat, um, I don't know. I don't know how to con- conceive of it politically. I suppose. Well, I, but I, I think you're, you're you're getting to it. I mean, it's the idea that you know everybody can, in theory, have access to it. And even though that's never the reality, that possibility and the fact that more and more people are having beef more and more, it kind of triggers a panic. So elite Americans start to obsess about what poorer Americans are eating. They start to talk about why they can't survive without this beef. Mm. Is there a quick takeaway, Josh? What's a a history of genocide, dispossession, corruption, price fixing, land exploitation, kitchen table misogyny, beef? It's what's for dinner. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Josh, uh, this is really good. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us on Interchange. We're going to close with Stan Kenton and Tex Ritter doing a version of the last roundup from 1962. Thanks to Josh Specht for another deeply disturbing look at the business of America. Josh is the author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America, published by Princeton University Press. Thanks again, Josh. Thanks again, Doug. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. I'm heading for the last round
Long. I'm a-headin' for the last round 